I also respect and understand the frustration that some might have regarding, let's say, board meetings, for example, where there's not an opportunity for that two-way conversation. Uh, the format of board meetings and the prescriptive agenda of a board meeting, because it is a business meeting of the board, really doesn't allow for that kind of response and interaction. And it's obvious that some people might be frustrated with that. Our obligation now is to try to find other opportunities for conversation and for communication outside of uh, the typical board or business meeting so that we can have discussions like you and I are having. Welcome to the Eans Parents United podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Silva. Join me for meaningful conversations and timely information about Eans School District. It's past, present, and where we hope, for the good of our children, it's heading. What does academic leadership of a school system look like? What does it feel like? Can school administrators actually be great leaders? And how do we elect leaders that will steward producing an excellent product, in this case, our kids, while satisfying their customers, the parents? In this episode, we're going to explore the topic of leadership and try to understand if there is a standard that all parents can unite behind for the good of our kids and teachers. Leadership comes in many forms. We have political leaders, military leaders, business leaders, moral leaders, spiritual leaders, and sports leaders, just to name a few. We can have great leaders, good leaders, and bad leaders, and it would be hard for everyone to everyone to agree that any one person could be a leader at all. There's really no way I could lecture anyone on leadership as there have been thousands of books written on the topic and there's tombs of knowledge on this subject that far and exceed any of my basic understanding of what leadership is. But deep inside of most Americans, most of us parents, we have an instinct that informs us when leadership is doing what it should be doing or not. Without any doubt, there has been a failure of leadership recently at Eans ISD that culminated in the early retirement of our superintendent, Tom Leonard. The scrutiny of our board leadership has never been higher, and in many respects, there are a great many parents that also support everything that they're doing. Both sides are right. We're not going to solve the absence of leadership here uh, on the Eans Parents Unite podcast, but we can talk about leadership and discuss what it looks like when it is successful and beyond reproach. Today, we have the great honor and pleasure of speaking with our newest superintendent, Dr. Jeffrey Arnett. Dr. Arnett has a long and colorful history uh, in our industry, I think some 35 years at some level in academia. He's actually been in our district now for a handful of years, serving to the past superintendent, Tom Leonard. He joins us on the podcast today to cover a wide variety of, variety of topics, including the budget, uh, the policy on DEI, uh, the attrition issues we might be experiencing with our teachers, communications with parents and the community at large, 
And as he's told me, any topic we want to discuss, he's ready to answer questions because one of his primary goals is improving uh, greatly the communication between him, the leadership, and the parents of our wonderful students and teachers here at Eanes Independent School District. So we are we're here um, on our leadership episode, mm-hmm. and who else to who better than to talk to you about leadership? Since you've just taken the reins, I think February twenty second. Well, officially? actually, I I'm not yet officially superintendent, and won't be until June first. So that's when everything officially begins. Um, so you can oh. do you pretty much have great latitude to do whatever you want between now and then. <laughs> or I may not become superintendent <laughs> yeah. based we'll on We'll see what uh, happens. Yeah. We may delay this podcast. Uh, so I you know I was going to say congratulations. Thanks. Uh but also like wow, are you sure you want to do it because it's, it's a lot of stuff going on right now. You know, I'm quite excited about the opportunity and yeah. humbled, frankly. Yeah. Um you know, I've been with Eanes now for six years, yeah. and uh, going into my 35th year of being an educator of some sort. Mm-hmm. So um, this is probably the most exciting, the most mm-hmm. exhilarating time of my career. Mm-hmm. And we have such a phenomenal school district, a wonderful community, and I'm very excited to step in and lead alongside all of these individuals. Uh, it, I was thinking on the way into the studio this morning about uh, how some people get thrust into leadership positions. Some people uh, find themselves a, a leader and they necessarily were the day before. Some people have always aspired to be a leader. And I was thinking about, uh, do you remember the, oh, are you old enough to remember the um, the uh, TV series Gomer Pyle? Absolutely. Yeah. There's this, there's this great, uh, I used to watch the reruns as a kid mm-hmm. and I'm sure you did as well. Yeah. And there's this uh, one a- episode where the drill instructor musters his platoon out onto the under the the um, uh, parade grounds yeah. and they're all standing in line at attention he says all right marines i've got a i've got a mission for one of you it's to go to the top of that hill uh crawl under barbed wire in mud you know guns firing over your head and you're gonna you're gonna take that hill who wants to volunteer <laughs> and you know what happens everyone steps back yeah. but gomer yeah. pile yeah. <laughs> so you do you you want this. This is something I mean, you've seen what's gone on for years. Sure. You know what you're getting into. I, I do. And I've had the opportunity to work in this school district to get to know so many people. And it's the people, I think, that really inspire me to uh, mm-hmm. the opportunity that's in front of me, in front of all of us, frankly. Mm-hmm. And there, um, if I if I follow the news correctly, there are a lot of superintendents across the country that are leaving. Mm-hmm. It's a significant issue right now, um, you know, uh, for reasons maybe don't even need to go stated, mm-hmm. but we understand there's a tremendous amount of pressure on superintendents. So my guess is I would tend to uh, have agree with you. You you must want it knowing what's in front of you. And and you, you, uh, you probably aren't taking the position thinking you want to keep things the same. Mm-hmm. You have some ideas on where it could go or how it could be different because you have been here for five or six years. Mm-hmm. Can you can you give us a sense of, you know, what's in front of you or the things kind of top of mind mm-hmm. as you, uh, um, you know, ascend yes. to that position? Well, I don't know that it's an ascension necessarily, <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, I, I try to simplify things as much as I possibly can. That's my nature. And uh, I think that 
if we can approach things from a uh, not a simplistic but a simplified manner, it helps everybody understand exactly what the intent is, what the mission is, and where we're going. And mm-hmm. so with that in mind, I would distill it down into three very simple objectives. One, I want, and I think that we all want, this to be the very best school district that it can be for the families that have chosen to live here, our staff who choose to work here. We want it to be the best academically. We want it to be the best in terms of its extracurriculars and its athletic options. Mm -hmm. And we believe that we are the best. And that's a standard that we not only want to maintain, but we we want to exceed. I think next to that is this paramount concern that not only faces our district, but also districts across the country. And that is, how do we retain, how do we attract, how do we develop, how do we grow and invest in this wonderful staff of teachers and educators that we have? Mm. Uh, We know nationwide there's an exodus from the teaching profession. Alarmingly, a lot of colleges and universities are discontinuing their teacher preparation programs Hmm. uh, because there's lack of interest in Hmm. uh, the profession. So we have to do whatever we can to uh, maintain, to invest in, to build into the teachers that we currently have because Mm -hmm. we know that they're making sacrifices Mm -hmm. uh, to work in our school district. Many of them cannot afford to live in our community. Uh, Our salaries in some cases are not as competitive as we would like them to be Mm -hmm. with other neighboring school districts. So we have to do everything we can to create a culture for our teachers so that they want to be here and they want to stay. Mm -hmm. And then somewhat similar to that, my third objective is we want to grow and develop our leaders. Uh, I firmly believe that when leaders get better, the organization gets better. Mm -hmm. We have campus leaders. We have district leaders. And that generation of leadership is critical to making sure that we are providing the best schools for Mm -hmm. our students, our families, and our staff, Mm -hmm. and we're supporting them. And so whether it's a principal or whether it's someone who is responsible for a program, I want to make sure that we are developing them and helping them be the best leader that they can be because that then helps our teachers and certainly helps our students. Mm -hmm. So the three things, uh, retain staff and attract the best staff you Mm -hmm. possibly can to teach, Uh, develop the staff, into future leaders, administrators. As well as our current leaders. As your current leaders. Um, and the first one was keep it simple so, or, or keep, remain, continue to be the best. Continue to be the best. Continue to be the yeah, best. That's a standard that we want to maintain. That's the expectation mm-hmm. of our community, and we feel an mm-hmm. obligation to live up to that. And that's obviously not possible without the second and third. Absolutely. Uh, coming. They're all contingent on each other. So there's a lot that we're going to cover today. Um, We'll get. We'll talk right right now about staff attrition. Uh, we're going to try to cover budget. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk a little bit about DEI, mm-hmm. um, communication with parents in the community. We're going to touch on library books, and if we have time, we're going to get into world affairs. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready for that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah so. you want to start there? Yeah. Uh, you know your uh, your qualifications to be superintendent are. I mean, you're eminently qualified. Obviously, but there was something I saw in your past that I think is very interesting for people to understand about you. And um, I apologize to surprise you with this today, but you have to talk about your baseball Hall of Fame experience. <laughs> I thought that is the coolest thing. When you and I met, we talked a little bit about yeah. it. So, so 
Tell us about when you worked for the Baseball Hall of Fame, what yeah. you did for them. You know, it's interesting how many people want to talk about that, and I never assume that anyone is a baseball fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I learned that while I was working there, so I'll begin there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've always been a fan of the game, but more so of its history and its uh, its place in our culture. And so I did take a little bit of a detour. I'd been a a public school teacher and administrator for many years and had the opportunity to go to work for the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. And it is the quintessential Hall of Fame. It's it's, uh, the institution uh, that really probably coined the phrase Hall of Fame. The tip tip of the tip. It is. And, And it is where I learned probably more so than anywhere else, but a lesson that I've carried with me to this position just the importance of excellence. And uh, it is an institution that honors excellence and that culture, that value, the attention to quality and detail, uh, the uh, the level of service that is required to live up to that prestige, mm-hmm. uh, that has so now deeply embedded in who I am. Mm-hmm. And it is a value that I carry with mm-hmm. me into this new opportunity. Mm-hmm. Did you ever play baseball as a kid? <laughs> were, you in, uh, were you in sports? I did, sports? but badly. Badly? Uh, I played Little League and played a little bit in high school, uh, but that was the extent of my playing mm-hmm. career. Uh, but I've always loved the game and, and uh, have a deep appreciation for its part of our culture and yeah. history. Athletics... Uh, and team sport in particular informs you as how to become an adult and be successful in mm-hmm. life in so many ways. Absolutely. The, the, the lessons I that I learned about business, about making something of yourself on the baseball field, mm-hmm. cannot be enumerated. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's just tremendous, and and I I I'm certain um, you know to a credit to what Westlake High School does with its athletic programs. Mm-hmm. I mean, you are really that on in and of itself is turning out and guaranteeing the quality of so many students yeah. that we put up competitive teams that are coached by you know fantastic uh, men and women. Yeah. I mean, it's just you just can't get a payback on that over time. I mean, it really is amazing. Absolutely, and that's the honor of this position, knowing that I am part of an organization that. Uh, is founded on excellence in leadership, excellence in performance. And I think what I have learned just in athletics in general, and this is true of any sport, is not only is the physical competition essential, obviously, but the intelligence that's required to perform at that level. The mental preparedness. Absolutely. And I've heard our coaches say many times that our Student athletes may not necessarily be the most physically gifted on the field, yeah. but they have made sure that they are the most uh, academically prepared in terms of the sport and its discipline, and that allows them to outperform their competition in so many cases. Yeah, I look forward to um, uh, having Coach Dodge on the podcast yeah. to talk about uh, these these <laughs> concepts and how important it is to de- develop in these young young adults Absolutely. through the athletic programs. Uh one of the the benefits you get to inherit by taking over, or, you know, uh, becoming the superintendent is all the successes, but you also get some of the failures. And I think that uh, there's a perception or a concern from some, that some parents share 
that because you've been there for as many years as you've been there, and we've had some rocky times lately, mm-hmm. that potentially it's going to be more of the same, that uh, you're going to repeat what hasn't been working in the past or maybe not um, be prepared to deviate from it or do uh, what might seem to be uh, more positive uh, in some respects. What what can you share with us about how your style is going to be different from your predecessor, potentially, who achieved great things while he was here and, and deserves all the credit um, f- for, for what he did while he was here? But what can you share with the listeners about how it's going to be a little different under you, if at all, mm-hmm. and where are you going to take us? Sure. Well, first of all, uh, Dr. Leonard and I have worked together for many years. I think it's well known that uh, over the span of 15 years, this is the second organization that he and I have served together in. And I think the reason why that partnership has been effective is because we complement each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, we are uh, different, and I wouldn't uh, focus on those differences other than to say that uh, those really illustrate uh, the importance of making sure that you've got leaders within the organization who balance each other and complement each other. Mm-hmm. And so going forward, uh, I want to build on those successes. And if there have been mistakes or missteps in the past, uh, rather than dwell on those, what I'd yeah. like to do is learn from those. Mm-hmm. And let's figure out what has occurred previously that we can reflect on mm-hmm. and uh, incorporate into our thought and our planning for the future Mm -hmm. Uh, because every organization, no matter how successful it is, can look back and learn from uh, things that perhaps didn't go as well as were expected or or didn't play out the way they were anticipated. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I want to do with our leadership team going forward is because we've all experienced those things together, especially over the last two years. How can we learn from those mm-hmm. and be a better organization as a result of those and the lessons that mm-hmm. we've learned? Can you can you give me a couple examples of uh, past learnings? Well, I think the last two years are probably the perfect example. And if you look at the last two years and the experiences of the past 24 months, either collectively or individually, uh, there have been many. Uh, mm-hmm. COVID, for example, Uh, There were a lot of things that we had to learn and figure out during the course of the pandemic that we had never experienced before, neither had families in the community or our teachers. And so, not not since 1918. No. Yeah. Um, You know, it was a once in a lifetime experience, we hope. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it has certainly taught us to be adaptable and flexible. And when things didn't work out the way that we had hoped or thought during the pandemic, we had to adjust, and we'll continue to adjust. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that things will ever be normal again, mm-hmm. um, and so now we anticipate change, and we have to learn how to simplify the way we work as an organization and be nimble enough so that if we ever encounter something unforeseen, we can adjust and respond accordingly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think in addition to the pandemic. Obviously, there have been a lot of other things happening in society in general, Mm -hmm. uh, both at the national level, the regional, the state level, and the local level. And we've had to determine, okay, what is our response to that? What does that look like in our community? Mm -hmm. Um, If you put aside all of the national debate, um, I I think our constant focus is, what does this mean for EANS ISD? And back to my first priority of making sure that this is the best possible school district for our community, for our parents, and for our staff, 
we have to always localize these issues and determine to what extent uh, those issues are relevant to us and where they are relevant. How do we adapt our programs and our approaches so that we continue to focus on mm-hmm. making this the best possible school district for our local community? Can you can you give me an example of a speci- something specific mm-hmm. uh, where mm, when this comes up again, we're going to do it a little differently? Yeah, I can. Uh, uh, there was a well-known episode involving um, a book that was inadvertently read in a classroom, uh, mm-hmm. and and we're convinced that that was not intentional. Mm. Uh, it was something that happened uh, without perhaps some forethought mm-hmm. uh, on the part of uh, the educators who were involved. Uh, and the reaction to that, not only by parents, but also by the school district, uh, was an unfortunate convergence of opinions and emotion. Mm. And uh, that book was played out publicly and, and how that uh, situation was handled and I think we learned and we we reflected on our response mm-hmm. in that situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we certainly took into account the perspective of a lot of parents, a lot of teachers. And those perspectives didn't always align, didn't always mm-hmm. agree. Mm-hmm. And our job is always to try to find the middle ground, to mm-hmm. find, a, uh, find a common ground approach to emotional situations like that. Mm-hmm. Since then... Uh, there might have been other situations that were very similar, but we handled it very differently. Uh-huh. Um, we learned from the previous situation, and I think that the the result in a subsequent uh, example of that was much different based mm-hmm. upon what we had learned before. Yeah. Well, things move so quickly today, mm-hmm. and uh, there's almost no incident that can be isolated and dealt with uh you know, behind the scenes or mm-hmm. private. Sure. Yeah, uh, and it, I'm sure that I I know in just businesses, you know, it's, something happens inside an organization and yeah. it's out on social media and yeah. people are having to respond to not only the internal matter, right, and the issue might have a morale, but they have also have to deal externally, and you have to do it, you know, right now. You, and, and you have to anticipate that it's going to become very public. Yeah. And. Yeah. When it does, then we have a responsibility, yeah. and we know that we're accountable yeah. to our community. And if we didn't handle something correctly, we need to make amends for that. We need to learn from it, and we need to be better yeah. because of it. Yeah, uh, making this this particular example you're talking about, other teachers uh, will see this, mm-hmm. and it can affect morale, mm-hmm. and morale affects attrition, which is going to which brings us back to what your one sure. of your goals. Can you? Tell us just with an understanding. We have business people, a lot of business people out here. We deal with numbers. What is uh, the attrition rate, if mm-hmm. that's how you refer to it? How, how many how many teachers are we losing? Sure. How many do we normally gain? Mm-hmm. What's the net effect? What's the if, what's the trend? Mm-hmm. I mean, even if it's a a really bleak situation, I, I don't know that it is or isn't. You know, paint us a picture so we can understand what's going on. Sure. You know, speaking of morale, uh, as an example, before I uh, came today for the podcast recording, I stopped by Hill Country Middle School. And uh, I purposely wanted to visit with a couple of our educators who uh, I knew were struggling with difficult situations. And I wanted to make sure that they felt encouraged and I wanted to listen to them Um so that we can always take that teacher perspective into account. And they did indicate 
that uh, morale continues to be a challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, that's not unique to our school district. Uh, if you look nationally, uh, there, there unfortunately is an exodus of educators from the profession. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have to be cognizant of that mm-hmm. and we have to be mindful of what the challenges are that they're facing so that we can take that into account. But if you look at our district, yeah. um, there are teachers who have left the mm-hmm. school district. Uh, just this year alone, from the first day of school to the present, 22 teachers mm-hmm. uh, have left the profession. Mm-hmm. Uh, perhaps they had other opportunities or they just felt like they needed to devote more time to their family. We respect mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but 22 this year. By comparison, last year, there were 33 mm-hmm. that left. So uh, the number is slightly yeah. less as of today, and we're gratified yeah. for that. Um, the year before, the first year of the pandemic, there were 12 teachers uh-huh. um, that left. So things have become more complex yeah, since we've gotten farther. It's not a, it's not a conclusive trend. No, it's yeah. not. Um, by comparison, though, if you consider that there are roughly 750 classroom educators in our school district. Uh-huh. So over the last roughly two years, less than 10% of those have left the profession. Mm-hmm. Um, that is less than what we're seeing nationally. Is it? Okay. Um, nationally, what are we seeing? Do you know? Oh, nationally, it's probably in excess of 20%. One in five. Mm-hmm. And here we're seeing about one in 10. Right. We are having continual conversations with our staff and with each other about what we can do to invest in our teachers mm-hmm. Um if we can't compensate them to the level that other districts are able to for a variety of reasons, which we can talk about during the financial part of our sure. discussion, uh, what else can we offer them? And what does the culture look and feel like here? Mm. Um, for one thing, we have parents who are so generous and so supportive of our teachers. The booster clubs, the PTOs, they really do pour into the local campus and teachers tell us that they feel that support and that appreciation, and that's instrumental. Uh, we have to ask ourselves, too, what can we do as a school district, as an organization, to make sure that teachers feel valued here mm-hmm. and that we are supporting them and developing them. Mm-hmm. I've uh, had teachers tell me that, 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 that have been in the profession a long time that the dynamic has changed in the relationship between the parent and the teacher. Mm-hmm. It used to be that if the child was not performing properly, uh, there'd be a you know parent-teacher conference, and in would come Johnny with the parents, and he's not getting good marks, and the parents would really be asking the kid, you know, what are you doing? How can mm-hmm. we change this? Why aren't you performing? What's going on? Today, uh, parents would say to the teacher, why are you giving my kid this low grade? What is it you're not doing right? Uh, you know, my kid can't be failing. Is this anecdotal, or is this in some way a prevailing shift uh, out there amongst parents here in our district? Mm-hmm. I think it's a combination of things, Aaron. Um, you know, we serve a community that is very well educated, highly involved in our schools, and we appreciate that. Uh, that level of parent engagement is mm-hmm. important. I think it's uh, it's a fundamental aspect of what makes Eanes ISD so great. And we want to be able to continue that. But with that does come some stress. And not every parent has the same approach or appreciation for and what's this, happening this in the classroom. this must wear on teachers and, and affect morale. Yeah, we hear that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the 
the involvement and the access that parents had to instruction, particularly during the Zoom era yeah. of the pandemic, uh, gave parents more understanding um, and perhaps uh, empowered them uh, to be more involved in their child's education. So there's a balance there that we have to find. And that's also an important conversation for both teachers and parents. Mm-hmm. Is this, uh, I, I think I said in a previous podcast, that this awakening, uh, this awareness now that parents have about what's going on in the classroom because they were forced into Zoom sessions and they had to sit for the first time shoulder to shoulder. Has this engagement with parents, is it really, is the district really not uh, ready to handle that level of engagement where before it was more passive and parents were kind of on the periphery engaged and supportive and now it's just like wow yeah i don't know that parents were ever necessarily passive before mm-hmm. uh, as i said we have or a high, we'll say less active yeah, we have a highly engaged community mm-hmm. and again that's an attribute of the eans isd that is special i think that in fairness to teachers they had to learn how to teach in a completely new environment as well. And so parents were always, they were observing teachers learning a whole new craft. Uh, We had teachers who who said, teachers who had been uh, in the classroom teaching for 20 or more years, teachers who said, I had to relearn how to Mm. teach in that environment. And parents were given a front row seat Mm -hmm. to teachers having to relearn their craft and their profession. And that wasn't easy for educators easy mm-hmm. either. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I think it was an eye-opening experience for teachers and for parents. And it has caused everyone to have to reset their expectations of what education looks like going mm-hmm. forward. Mm-hmm. So uh, so attrition is being driven, uh, you feel, partially by morale, um, personal reasons, which mm-hmm. we can't speculate on what those might be. Some of it's financial. Mm-hmm. Um, we have competition we around do. us. Yeah. Uh, other school districts. One of the benefits, one of the benefits we enjoy about having only one high school, we only have one high school. But there, are the, the the area around us is exploding. It is. And what does that competition look like? How are they compensating teachers differently mm-hmm. that we should be aware of here in Westlake, so we can have that on our mind as we're thinking about the budget and what we need to do for the teachers to retain them? Right. Well, Eans ISD has sort of the double burden of being both an affluent property district. Uh, We know that the homes in our school district are of considerable value, and uh, that equates to a certain level of property wealth, according to the school funding formula. And frankly, we're penalized for that. Uh, That subjects us to uh, a higher recapture ratio, uh, according to the state funding formula. Mm -hmm. So that's one aspect of it. Um, the well, you, other, can't, you can't change that. No, we can't. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We can't change Gotta that. Gotta live with that one. And we're also landlocked. We're not a fast-growth school district. Um, we are not seeing uh, the droves of families who are moving here to the extent that they are in some of the neighboring school districts. Mm-hmm. So, again, we're penalized for that because fast-growth school districts are typically not subject to recapture, especially fast-growth school districts that have lower socioeconomics than we have in Eanes ISD. Mm-hmm. So the combination of all of those variables uh, is really a consequence when you look at it in the context of the school funding formula. Mm-hmm. And that's why our recapture payments are so significantly high. Whereas other districts around us, they have lower property values in many cases, although uh, throughout the Austin area, property values are increasing. Mm-hmm. 
but they have lower socioeconomics. Uh, they have more students who qualify for free and reduced lunch, and they're fast growth. Uh, mm-hmm. They're seeing this tremendous influx of families because they have larger land area. They're not uh, landlocked, and there's more construction and more development. Mm-hmm. So those districts that have lower socioeconomics and are fast growth districts can pay their teachers more. Can pay the teachers more because they're not subject to the level of recapture, uh, uh, and they're receiving uh, more money from the state. How much more? Oh, significantly more. Like 5%, 20%? Um, it varies from district to district, but it's it's significantly more than what we uh, would receive from the state because of our ratio. So, so give me round numbers. Oh, it's hard to quantify that mm-hmm. because every district is different. Austin mm-hmm. ISD is different than Leander ISD, which is different than Round Rock ISD. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reality is, and I think that this probably uh, was – was exemplified in the federal funding that came to districts during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Um, Those districts, because of the different variables that I just mentioned, received so much more in federal funding, uh, in some cases two and three times more Mm -hmm. uh, per student, if not more than that. And those districts were able to use those federal funds to offset their budget in other places that then allowed them to either provide bonuses for their teachers or um, um, raise their level of compensation. We don't have that luxury. And so we become uh, a victim perhaps of our own socioeconomics and the fact that we're not fast growth. Within the funding formula, all of that subjects us to a level of funding that doesn't allow us to compensate our teachers to to the level that other school districts do. Another example is one of the probably few things that uh, I don't get offended by much, but one of the few things that kind of pisses me off is that uh, all of us out here that are successful, you know, worked our butts off mm-hmm. to 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 live the American dream, and we get it. And now our kids are less valuable mm-hmm. from a funding standpoint because we've been successful, mm-hmm. or they're getting less uh, per student. And my my child is undervalued because I'm because I made it. Mm-hmm. I, I just don't get that. You know, they, I don't know if they call that progressiveness mm-hmm. in the academic and academia. I'm not sure what it is, but it's it's ridiculous. And uh, you know, EEF comes around every year. What they want sure. five or six thousand dollars ahead, mm-hmm. right? On t- isn't that what their ask is? Something like that. I, I don't know what their ask is, but they're certainly generous because they typically will contribute back to the district in the neighborhood of two point five million dollars yeah. a year. Or so yeah, it's mm-hmm. it's it's silly. Yeah, um, and I think Aaron to the other uh, um, other point that I would make on that is we have such a phenomenal community uh-huh. that has very high expectations, and there our, our community is accustomed to the level of programming and athletics and extracurriculars that we offer. But the state of Texas doesn't believe that um, all of those options and all of those benefits necessarily fit what they would define as the typical public school district and the funding that they associate of course. with school districts. So in a sense, we are providing a, um, a, a private kind of university caliber education because that's the expectation of our community. We want to honor that, but the state is not funding us uh, at that level. Well, maybe if we are providing that level of education and we're thinking of ourselves as a university, maybe it's time to create an endowment. (laughs) Well, I'm I'm serious. And the I mean, there's there's 
That wouldn't be hard to create. The Eanes Education Foundation has created an endowment, and they are a wonderful partner. We Mm -hmm. could not do what we do without EEF. Uh, But there has been a lot of discussion lately about maybe we do need to take more of a university approach in terms of developing donors and fundraising above and beyond uh, what we're currently doing. Why don't we have a couple hundred million dollars sitting in an endowment uh, that are – funding these gaps yeah. and how we compensate our teachers yeah. uh, and, and all these other things we want to do. And that's a great point because, you know, universities obviously are able to do that. Well, UT has the largest endowment in the world. And that's a four-year institution uh, when you look at the, the bachelor experience, whereas we are a 13-year yeah. uh, institution in many cases. So families are here and their children and their students are a part of our institution for much longer than they would be at a college or university. Well, considering how many students we send up to UT, (laughs) we should go to UT Endowment and say, fund our endowment. You know, something creative like that. Can we have an endowment? Is there anything that precludes us? legally from having an endowment if we wanted one? Well, that's what EEF is able to provide. But they don't have an endowment. They just give us a donation every year. Well, they do have an endowment. How big Uh, is their endowment? Well, I think it's growing, and uh, they could tell you the size Mm. of it. It's relatively new. But, but it's not a couple hundred million dollars large. Not yet. No, yeah, I mean, it's got to no. it's got to be big. That's what they aspire to, and we certainly want to support them mm. in that. So, seems to me there's someone out there that could make this happen if that's an initiative that we have to do. And there's one thing to raise money every year and to bring give to the school, which is yeah. fantastic, and it's funding teachers every year. But that is um, that is not as sustainable long term. When you have an endowment sitting there, mm-hmm. you can make big capital plans and make capital investments and do great things around an endowment that you might not be able to do around an investment that is regenerated year after year. Absolutely. Through yeah. you know, great effort and rigor of the, the folks in EEF to do that. Yeah. But we also don't think that that should relieve the state of its responsibility no. to fairly fund Oh, they'd find a way to education. penalize us. Well, I, the other thing that we hope is that uh, – with the next legislative session, there will be some consideration to raising the basic allotment that the state mm-hmm. provides for each individual student. Yeah. If they would do that, mm-hmm. then in all likelihood, we wouldn't be looking at uh, some of the serious financial projections that um, are on the page in front yeah. of us. So. Yeah. Um, let's come come around to uh, communication, mm-hmm. uh, an, an area that has certainly created a lot of tension with parents uh and between leadership of EISD is communication. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, there has been uh, quite a bit of discourse, uh, some of it even turning uh, uncivil. I've been to the board meetings. Of course, you've been to all of them. And, um, you know, it doesn't, doesn't, it's not a good look on this great institution we have out here now 50 years old. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, I think it's, you know, beneath a lot of the parents, how they're acting and and how the leaders might be acting, uh, not the standard. Both sides uh, certainly could could do better. What um, what can you do differently, or what do you have in mind to do differently to to reinstall or to get the two way communication uh, going? Because it's not going mm-hmm. right. I mean, what, this podcast I started it because there's no communication and. Most people haven't heard from you or heard from your predecessor in a format like this. Uh, what do you have in mind that's going to change so that instead of it, it's not just a one-way uh, shouting match from mm-hmm. parents at board meetings? Yeah, and I appreciate 
the opportunity to be on the podcast. I think, as you said, this is an example of the type of dialogue that we feel is important to move forward. Uh, Tension uh, around whatever the issue may be is not necessarily a bad thing. You know, there can be healthy tension Mm -hmm. and disagreement, and I think that's also important to the discourse as long as we are willing to listen and understand all of the different perspectives, it's incumbent of us to try to find opportunities for that and to facilitate that dialogue so that we are listening and we are understanding all of the perspectives that are out there. I also respect and understand the frustration that some might have regarding, let's say, board meetings, for example, where there's not an opportunity for that two-way conversation. Uh, The format of board meetings and the prescriptive agenda of a board meeting, because it is a business meeting of the board, really doesn't allow for that kind of response and interaction. And it's obvious that some people might be frustrated with that. Our obligation now is to try to find other opportunities for conversation and for communication outside of uh, the typical board or business meeting so that we can have discussions like you and I are having. Mm-hmm. And We do not want politics to become the parameter by which we determine how and when we have conversation and, more importantly, how and when we can find common ground and common sense in all of these issues that are of concern to parents so that we can identify places that we agree and use that as the springboard for moving Mm -hmm. forward. Mm -hmm. Well, how do people know where you agree if there's no conversation? Certainly. Yeah. Well, so w- what do you have in mind? Do you, do you have any uh, new vehicle in mind, mm-hmm. a new way to engage the community in, in whole? Yeah. You know, those take those people that come to the board meetings, whatever side of the issue they may be on. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not getting that engagement. Mm-hmm. Is there another uh, concept or idea you have for getting their engagement sort of outside the business meeting where you can – have some dialogue where the trustees will yeah. speak? Well, first of all, to reflect on what we've already said, we have tremendous resources in our community. Mm-hmm. We have individuals who, frankly, are experts nationally recognized in what you and I are discussing. Mm-hmm. And we want to lean on those resources and ask for their help in designing a new way for individuals for stakeholder groups to interact with each other and to develop like a those, forum or something to develop those relationships of understanding mm-hmm. and you know some would say it's even difficult to do that in a town hall setting where it's open to everyone and uh, you know you're in a very large imposing audience we want it to be more uh, personal mm-hmm. uh, we want there to be greater interaction and so we are actually talking about a series and a sequence of opportunities for people to engage at different levels, students, parents, Mm -hmm. staff, uh, to understand those diverse perspectives. Mm -hmm. And we want that to be meaningful, Mm -hmm. and we know that it's going to happen in uh, small ways to hopefully make an incremental difference in moving the community forward and trying to break down some of the walls and and repair some of the fractures Mm -hmm. that have occurred. Um, In my family, we seem to get through uh, difficult times. Sometimes it does take a shouting match. Mm-hmm. And I worry that if what I hear you're saying is instead of having that town hall where it might be uncomfortable and it might be, you know, uh, 
not going to be a Jerry Springer episode or anything like that, but you get those opinions out. What I hear you saying is you rather do smaller little groups, kind of like some of the committee work we're doing. Mm -hmm. Isn't there a concern that then just the people that are interested in that are going to go to that and it's just going to be a bunch of folks talking to one another about the things you know, about what they're interested in and the other side not hearing those perspectives? Yeah, we do not. There's something about the public square that's missing. Yeah. And we have to find a balance, Mm -hmm. I believe, uh, between large, medium size and Mm -hmm. small opportunities for Mm -hmm. engagement. Uh, Mm -hmm. We don't want it to become an echo chamber. Yeah. But what it does require of us is to be intentional Mm -hmm. and to not be afraid of diverse perspectives Mm -hmm. and to thoughtfully seek out people who we know might appear to be on opposing sides and to give them an opportunity to hear each other. Mm -hmm. I'm aware that uh, since you've, uh, I'm I'm aware that you've been quite active in going and meeting with individual parents, Mm -hmm. myself included. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's a class act. And I think that type of listening Mm -hmm. is what has to happen at a broader level. It's almost, um, maybe we need a year of a listening campaign. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and feedback mm-hmm. and in hearing from folks, uh, getting to know each other, getting uh, trying to restore uh, what it was pre-pandemic, mm-hmm. where we had those uh, moments where we could go into an assembly and all mm-hmm. be together. Just the camaraderie isn't yeah, there. Yeah. I I I hope you are successful doing this, and it is something that's done for a period of time to give everyone the possibility of engagement. Yeah. And then as you learn through that, like you said, then you can start getting into uh, these more focused areas. And you're right. We do have some really heavy hitters Mm -hmm. over here that could help facilitate this stuff and could be impartial, independent. But we need a conversation badly. I agree. And that's what I enjoy about the work. Uh, I have a very meager budget uh, Mm -hmm. associated with my position, and I probably use more than half of it. Uh, mm-hmm. for coffee conversations. I, uh-huh. I know every coffee corner in the community uh-huh. because yeah. I, I love interacting with individuals one-on-one or in small groups, sometimes husbands and wives, and listening to their perspective and trying to learn from that. Mm-hmm. So that as we go forward, we're incorporating all of those different viewpoints. Well, let's call it Coffee with Jeff, <laughs> and and we'll, in, we'll invite uh, about 100 parents in, yeah. and uh, you know we'll sit and ask you questions and take questions from the audience and um, I think that would be great. Well, I think you're right. The conversational aspect is um, we, we've identified that as an important component. Mm-hmm. And we want it to be conversations about furthering excellence mm-hmm. because excellence is what our school district is known for. Yeah. Uh, we want it to be conversations about finding equilibrium and trying to restore some balance and calmness to the community. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, that's going to be a big first step. <laughs> I agree. So let's um, – uh, let's bring the tension up a little bit and talk about a couple. <laughs> now that we've eased down on the back of our couches, yeah. uh, let's uh, bring the tension up a little bit and talk about a, a, a couple of very hot topics right okay, now. Sure. Uh, we'll talk about, uh, we'll start with diversity, equity, and inclusion. Okay. Um, I, I'm not, I don't have any interest personally in debating whether it's good or bad mm-hmm. or getting into the details about it because, frankly, I don't understand it. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to understand it. I have a general curiosity about it. And I think you have a population of parents that do understand it and are, you know, behind it. You have a 
a group of parents like myself that are, ooh, doesn't sound like something I want to have here, mm-hmm. but I don't really understand it. Uh, I'll, I'll learn more, reserve my full judgment uh, until until I'm more enlightened about it. And then I think you have a group of parents that know they want nothing to do with it, mm-hmm. and they'll fight uh, to the death um, that it leave the school district if they have to. And then you probably have a group of parents who are just par- passive about it, you mm-hmm. know. Um, so setting aside all about what it is, I have this question uh, about it, is is if DEI, if the curriculum that you're contemplating right now uh, were implemented in some form, is it going to help my fifth grade boy or my seventh grade daughter achieve greater scholastic success, increase the possibility of them attending college? having higher earning potential when they leave the school system and go out into life? Or is it going to drive any of these outcomes for my kids mm-hmm. in, in your understanding? And and if it if it is, try to make me understand how it's going to do that. Sure. Well, that's a valid question. And it's one that um, we discuss not only among parents, but also among ourselves as educators, um, because we want to make sure that whatever – is being explored, whatever is being introduced is adding value and does actually contribute to um, the excellence uh, that we're known for. You know, the best thing that I would point to is research. For example, the Scientific American uh, did a, a study where they actually looked at uh, a, an array of uh, research projects that looked specifically to the question that you're asking. Mm-hmm. And what they found from all of the different studies that have been done over a number of years is that when you um, when you highlight diversity and when you highlight inclusion, that it brings a greater awareness of differences. It uh, stimulates thought. Uh, it creates an appreciation for different cultures. So that as students are preparing for not only the world that currently surrounds them, but the world that they're going to step into at the college and university level when they enter their vocations, uh, they're going to have an appreciation for all of those different skills and perspectives. And they're going to, in all likelihood, work in a very diverse environment themselves. And it allows them to be more adaptable and more functional. So we're laying the foundation for that, Uh, and I think that's the expectation of every family is that we're preparing students for life after Westlake. Uh, We're preparing students for the society that they're going to work and enter into. And whether it translates to higher scores on college entrance exams, that may be irrelevant. Uh, What's more important is that it's preparing them for life and the workforce after they leave our community and in places that will probably look and feel very different than where they have grown up. And it's that preparation and that stimulation of thought and awareness of other cultures, other backgrounds, other orientations that will help them be more successful uh, after they graduate, uh, but certainly while they're still here too, we hope. But that's a theory. Mm-hmm. I mean, do we have any data that pans that out, that proves that out? That Because that, DEI is really a cottage industry that's been around about five or six years in, 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 its, in its active form in uh, academia at this level. Well, I mean, do we, we don't have enough students yet to say that that's true. Well, do we? You know, you, you can't always measure what matters. 
And I think what we feel matters is our students are being prepared for a very diverse world. Mm -hmm. And while you may not be able to assign a quantitative measure to that, Mm -hmm. uh, qualitatively, uh, we hear from students who go on to other places that there were aspects of their preparation here that were either very good or inadequate. And so those reflections, especially after they leave here and go to other places, uh, the the feedback that we gather from our graduates as they reflect on their experiences here versus where they are either in college or mm-hmm. in the workforce uh, tells us that there are things that we need to either bolster or we need to adjust and we need to do better. So yes, it's true that some of those measures are anecdotal, mm-hmm. uh, but we have to filter those and we mm-hmm. have to determine what is reliable, what can we base our adjustments on now, and what do we need to learn more about. So is the feedback also anecdotal or is there has there been a measure, a quantifiable measurement of either the student body, mm-hmm. the teachers, or the parents that are demanding this mm-hmm. as part of the educational uh, curricula because they're concerned that their children won't be prepared or the p- children believe that they won't be ready or the teachers say that they don't have the tools to make the teacher the, the kids ready. Mm-hmm. Is there been something, a measure like that internally quantifying uh, the need? We have uh, measures and we have surveys of our graduates uh-huh. um, reflecting on some of the, the points that I just made. Mm-hmm. Um, we also do climate surveys. And in fact, um, we also we, I think what we understand is that going forward, uh, if if this is a value, then we need to understand where that fits within our approach to instruction. Mm-hmm. And so, as we often do, we will adjust climate surveys and other uh, measures that we take of student and staff perception mm-hmm. to incorporate questions like those that you're asking. Mm-hmm. So while the benchmarks may not exist now, mm-hmm. uh, hopefully they will exist in the future so that we can make decisions accordingly. So we're um, we're not necessarily responding with DEI to a particular acute matter that we're aware of inside the school that sits right now. It's really based on the surveys and feedback you're getting from alum and other complementary research that may be going on elsewhere. Well, and student experiences currently mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the state of Texas recently passed legislation that requires us to maintain records and accurate counts of instances. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not all of those are necessarily related to concerns. Instances of yeah. what? Well, any type of... Um, uh, student experience that might have uh, a concerning nature to it. It might be a threatening situation. It might be mm-hmm. a, a situation of harassment mm-hmm. or bullying. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't always have a racial aspect to it. Mm-hmm. But from that data, mm-hmm. um, which is very sensitive, uh, we can decipher whether or not there are any trends that are concerning enough for us to address in the way that we mm-hmm either create school culture or conduct instruction. Mm-hmm. Are we getting um, feed, you know, we uh, we have a minority population, I think two or three percent um, black mm-hmm. in, in our district and 15 or so percent um, Asian, Roughly, yes. uh, Latino. Mm-hmm. Are we getting uh, feedback from them 
um, you know, do we have an issue? Is it is it coming from them, or again, is it one of some of these these incidents? Are they occurring? Sometimes they are, yeah, mm-hmm. and we do receive that feedback, and we have to filter and we have to evaluate that feedback and determine does that merit any kind of a response or does it indicate a, a significant concern mm-hmm. that we need to address. Mm-hmm. Um, so then, um, kind of pull back again to uh, the parental concern about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, at least from the side of the parental group that doesn't want it, they're convinced they don't want it, or the folks that are more ignorant, like I am, learning about it but don't know enough, this resistance. Uh, do you feel that you're addressing their concerns? Because uh, I would I would not go too far out on a limb to feel to say that they probably feel more ignored. Mm-hmm. Like this this ship has already sailed. We're doing this. You got nothing to say about it. Here it comes. And that's where that tension comes from, obviously, in the absence of dialogue. Sure. What are we going to do about these parents to get parents up to speed on this? Mm-hmm. And then a follow-up question, why aren't we educating the parents about this first mm-hmm. so they understand what it is before we put it in front of our students? We don't need to educate parents on a new calculus program or what a business incubator is because we all know what that is. But this is so interestingly foreign to many folks. Mm-hmm. Why aren't we educating them? And and what would you say to the folks that say, oh, we're educating the teachers so the kids can come home and educate us about this? Hmm. What are we doing about that? Yeah. Because it's got to be addressed. Well, if, if we could start with what may be a misconception okay. around this topic, and that is um, many people believe that DEI is a curriculum or a program. It's not. It's neither of those. Um, it's not about curriculum. It's about culture. Okay. It's not about program. It's about principles. And we're not trying to create a formal program or curriculum here. There's no DEI course. No, absolutely not. Okay. And that's also one of the misconceptions regarding critical race theory. People think that we are teaching critical race theory. We're not. Mm. Um, In fact, critical race theory never comes up in conversation. It's never been part of any academic planning or instructional design. I think what I would ask of parents is their concerns around this topic, if they could step back and and evaluate whether or not those concerns are based on a national conversation mm-hmm. or are those concerns really specific to what's happening in our local schools. Mm-hmm. Because what's happening nationally and the narrative around what may be a national concern or topic doesn't always translate to the local level. Um, now, what has happened in our district, I believe, is uh, the national conversation has caused us to have a local discussion about are these issues that we need to be paying attention to in our schools? Is there a history of this in some way? And if so, how do we address that culturally? Um, we all value diversity, and I believe everybody would agree that we value inclusion. And that's not just talking about inclusion of those from different racial and ethnic backgrounds, but also inclusion of those with special abilities, inclusion of those who may have a different orientation or persuasion. Mm-hmm. Um, we're trying to be inclusive of all of the different groups. And that's a cultural mm-hmm. approach and conversation. It's not about curriculum. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about the principle of equity of opportunity, but not equity of outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not trying to guarantee or assure outcomes because that's up to the individual. But mm-hmm. we want to make sure that every individual has an opportunity to succeed in our school district. 
um, you know, these are ideas and concepts. I think uh, the leadership has to do a better job of getting out there I, and engagement. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm not convinced. I still feel there's there's. I don't mind if the school is is uh, teaching kindness and mm-hmm. respect and these sort of uh, these um, social these moral values mm-hmm. and reinforcing them because that's what I have at my home. Uh, but there's some things that I feel that I want to teach my kid. Mm-hmm. I want to teach my kid about diversity or racism or equity. Mm-hmm. That's up to me. Mm-hmm. And that's based on my personal experience. And you would probably hear this from a lot of parents. You probably already have. Mm-hmm. Um, why Why does it feel that schools are getting involved in the business of being a parent? Mm-hmm. In these, it, it, why, why are we touching this third electric third rail? Why is that happening, would yeah. you say? Well, that's an excellent question. And quite honestly, as educators, I think sometimes we wrestle under the weight of that expectation mm-hmm. um, because the schools today are not the same as those that you and I may have attended for sure 50 years ago. Um, certainly things have changed since then. And now the burden on public education is to be all things to all people. But yet all people have very different expectations of what that experience will look like for their child or their children. And what we have to constantly uh, try to determine is in an effort to be all things to all people, how do we find the middle ground? How do we find an approach to instruction and learning that will appease all people uh, and pay respect to most of the opinions and expectations mm-hmm. that parents have. Uh, but yet there are some parents who expect us to be more than that. And there are some parents who expect us to be much less than that. Mm-hmm. And so we have to try to constantly strive to find that balance. Mm-hmm. And that's not easy. Uh, frankly, that is one of the things that public education, I think, is struggling with today is uh, the demands being placed on it by a society that has put more and more weight and responsibility on what happens in the school. Yeah. It seems to me with uh, all the tension that surrounds this particular topic, it would behoove uh, the district to just find a way to pump the brakes a little bit, Mm -hmm. maybe um, spend some time educating parents Mm -hmm. really in a deliberate and direct way so uh, they could come to a better understanding and a level of enlightenment uh, that, that you have that we don't have. And then see where it goes from there and see just how 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 much resistance there is or how many people are opting or opting out. Yeah. I think just the idea that it's not a course and it's not part of the curriculum, uh, but I think there, there's a worry about it finding its way, whatever it is, into so many sure. other things. Yeah. So there's much to do there about DEI. We're going to have a podcast just – focused on DEI here um, soon, an episode. We'll talk more about that. But I wanted to uh, touch on the other um, hot topic of the day, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, topic du jour, which is library books. Mm -hmm. So let's set aside the debate on whether some books are historical in nature, and if we remove them, it could impede someone's access to historical information. I'm not talking about history books. Um, I don't even want to talk about uh, books that explore sexuality or homosexuality or gender, gender dysphoria, anything like that. Let's just set those books aside because that's a, those are topics onto itself. I just want to talk about 
the books that we know are in in the libraries right now that have very sexually explicit and vulgar content in them. I'm not going to you know, go into that. You, I've seen plenty of it. You've heard plenty of it. You might be privately looking into it yourself. I have no mm-hmm. idea. I don't sure. necessarily need to know. But the, the question I have around this is um, when I look at some of the content that's in these books, I know, well, I know for sure how much money and resource the school spends to protect children from accessing inappropriate material online. And, and we've got all kinds of these things in place. These, these seem incompatible, that we would, we would prevent one thing, but make it available to kids in the library. Mm-hmm. What, help me understand why these two things exist, co- can coexist. Yeah, I, that sounds logical. And, I'm trying to be logical. Yeah. I mean, that's my approach as a parent. And, and I think on the surface, that is a reasonable assumption. The reality is that uh, books are more nuanced than the content that's available online. And in, in fact, uh, books in a public library, whether it's a school or a community public library, are protected to some extent. Now, the bigger question is, why are those books in our collection? If they truly are objectionable and yeah. if if they are sensitive and controversial, yeah. why are they there to begin with? Yeah. And that's the question and the process that we are wrestling with. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have outstanding librarians who are very dedicated to their profession, and they want to provide a range of thought and access sure. to uh, ideas and information in the library. That's what a library is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and library books are categorized. Now, they don't necessarily have a label on them that might warn uh, the reader. Parental the advisory. Content. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But we have to do a good job of making sure that there is appropriate content in our library books. Mm-hmm. Um, those books are not being pushed on students. Uh, a student may seek out a book. Uh, and that's certainly their right. That's what libraries are for. Children have a right. Mm-hmm to seek out a book with that kind of content in it? Children have a right to access the books that are in a library if those books are developmentally and age-appropriate. And that's what we have if a response. If they are developmentally and age-appropriate. Mm-hmm. This right. is where we're now we're getting to the, 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 the issue. Mm-hmm. Some of this stuff is not age-appropriate. Well, but what you also have to understand is, and, and let's use the the list that is circulating, not only mm-hmm. in our district but in other school districts yeah. as well. yeah. Um, 330 books. Something like that, yeah. Um, that's out of all of the unique and individual titles in our collection. Thousands and thousands and thousands. 166,000 books. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's less than two-tenths of 1% of all of the books in our collection. Now, those books are still a focal point. Yeah, and we should, un- for being such a small amount, it should be an easy problem to fix. We understand that. And... Now the process that we're walking through with our librarians is to revisit our collection, to Mm -hmm. revisit specific books, and to make sure that if those books are in the collection, one, we ask the question, why and are they appropriate? And two, are they appropriate for the age level at which they're available? And the vast majority of those books on that list are available only at the high school. They're not available in our elementaries. Mm-hmm. Um, many of them are not even available in our middle schools. Mm-hmm. So uh, 
where they're available and to what age they're available is the question from which we begin. And then we determine, are yeah. those books appropriate for our collection? Yeah, I, I try to simplify it. You want to make things simple. I like to make things simple, too. And I I was trying to get my head around uh, some of the content I read. And I thought, you know, if a boy wrote down on a note verbatim mm-hmm. some of the language in those books and gave it to my daughter, mm-hmm. first, there'd be a problem between me and his dad, for one. But if I brought that to the school, I'm sure that boy would be disciplined. I mean, it would be bullying. It would be inappropriate content. I, I'm not sure what the litany of policy uh, policies he would be breaking by doing that, but it would not be acceptable in any way. Yeah. Or if he texted it to my daughter or if he, you know, any of that stuff. And so th- I think that is really where it, it starts to get me as a dad. Yeah. Like, come on. Yeah. There's I, no there's no benefit to that sitting in there. And there's so much other ways. That whatever that book was communicating, yeah. there's so many other books that could probably do it better. And there's no harm being done to students if those books were removed. Yeah. Uh, I don't necessarily disagree yeah. with it's that. It's hard to disagree with that one. Yeah. I mean, as logical, as emotional logical. And I am a parent myself. Yeah, you are too. And you don't want your daughters reading that stuff so as kids. I, I understand and can empathize. Yeah. What's curious about this conversation, I think, is that of all of the, um, the debate and the concerns mm-hmm. about materials in our library, um, and most of that has occurred this year, <laughs> um, this year we've not had a single parent file an objection to a specific book. And when we talk about parental rights and, and uh, parental involvement in the, the process of, of selecting instructional resources, yeah. there is a, a vehicle, there's an avenue that's available to parents to object to specific books for their child. Yeah. And I mean, we appreciate, honestly, mm-hmm. appreciate the attempt by parents to bring these concerns to our attention, especially during board meetings yeah. and otherwise. But we also want parents to know that there is a way for them to um, specifically and formally object to something that they don't want their child yeah. to access. I, I've seen these forms, and the mm-hmm. process is quite onerous. You have to fill out a very link. First, got to find the form. Then you have to fill out this form, and then you have to submit it. And there's a process that goes on, mm-hmm. a bureaucratic process, yeah. and it's a major pain in the butt. Uh, this is a ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure sort of situation. I hope you figure out a way to knock this one down. This seems like an easy win, and I hope uh, I hope you can. The other books that are uh, about history and uh, mm-hmm. you know history is not pretty. No, and uh, we should. History should be truthful, and I'm not gonna. I don't think you're gonna get as much tension around that. Mm-hmm. This one, I think, is an easy one. I hope you address the books, and I appreciate what you're having to say. It's encouraging to hear you say it. Mm-hmm. I think it's too bad you can't say this in a board meeting, <laughs> uh, but I'm sure you're saying it privately to teachers or to parents that are bringing it up. With the few minutes that we have remaining, um, let's talk about the budget a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, leave end on something really interesting. <laughs> Uh, so we have this, um, uh, you know, you're a, you're a public institution, uh, your accounting methods, um, might not line up with how I would run my books as a business owner and entrepreneur. 
But if you could, uh, knowing that most of the listeners are going to be business people out here and, and folks uh, more on my side of the tracks um, than yours and the folks that do the, the budgeting for the school, what uh, I understand we're, we have two or three major issues. One is where if it weren't for EEF, we would be somewhere around $4 million in the hole or $3.5 million in the hole. I could be wrong on that. Mm-hmm. Correct me, please. But the bigger issue is what's around the corner. Um, if property values here uh, compress or there's a slide, um, you know, there's we got a big issue coming uh, that we have to deal with. And we're, and we're not necessarily pushing the right buttons or pulling on the right levers today to head that off. It's the hardest thing to do because mm-hmm. what's around the corner because we're so dealed. Take us through the numbers at a high level, at a level that a business guy can understand and gal, and um, and then we'll go from there. What do you think the issue is? Sure. Well, currently we have a balanced budget, uh, and that's something that uh, the school district had difficulty achieving in the past. But mm-hmm. thanks to the support of voters, the um, the golden pennies or oh, the, the penny thing. Um, mm-hmm. you know, we've done that twice in the last uh, four to five years. So. That has helped us achieve a, a greater level of financial stability uh, mm-hmm. to take advantage of that provision in the funding formula. So thank you to our community and our voters for mm-hmm. that. Um, right now, we have a balanced budget. Next year, we project a balanced budget. Uh, in the years after that, we're looking at potential deficits, if the trends continue, that would probably be in the neighborhood of about $1.5 to $1.6 million a year. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's how, about, how big is the total budget? Well, total budget, uh, you know, if you look at our operating budget, uh, in the neighborhood of seventy million. Seventy so, million. Mm-hmm. So we're yeah. okay. Mm-hmm. So that's significant. Yeah, still seven percent, ten percent off. Yeah. So you know that does have implications potentially for staffing, and uh, we're doing everything we can to streamline and to prepare for that possibility. Mm-hmm. What I would say is that there have been deficits that were projected previously, too, uh-huh. that didn't materialize because uh, you know, th- uh, things fell in a direction that were actually favorable to us. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've been able to avert that in the past, mm-hmm. and the projections looking to the future are just that. Mm-hmm. And we're hopeful that there might be some elements that will play in our favor, mm-hmm. and we can avert some of that deficit, mm-hmm. and it won't be as severe as what we might anticipate. Is, is any of our operating uh, our revenue tied to um, a lot of the pandemic stuff that's going to dry up here pretty quick? I saw that Pelosi pulled it out of the bill the other day. Mm-hmm. Um, how much of that are we vulnerable, exposed to? Well, you know, if you look at the local and the state level, yeah. uh, maybe the best example of that is what we all experienced in January, where we had a significant drop in attendance because of the latest variant of mm-hmm. COVID. And the state still has not uh, provided a waiver for that because our funding is based upon we're not average. getting We're not getting, for the kids that miss school, we're right. not getting money for it. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's a sizable hit mm-hmm. uh, to our budget, potentially. We're hopeful that the state because every school district in the state is asking for the same thing. Yeah. And there's no reason for the state not to be responsive to that. They just haven't acted on it mm-hmm. yet. Are, are we ready for inflation? Well, I mean, that's that does have implications when you look at our uh, our energy costs uh-huh. and you know, what it uh, costs to fuel our buses. And um, so those are... Those hits are probably a little bit more significant than we had anticipated. Mm-hmm. But I will say this. Uh, we've got a, a fantastic chief financial officer, one mm-hmm. of the best in the state, and a great department mm-hmm. around that per, that person. Um, What's his name? Uh, Chris Scott. Chris Scott, yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. So 
you know, Chris has a good handle on this, and he's mm-hmm. very good about uh, keeping the administration and the board informed mm-hmm. of how things are fluctuating. And that's what we have to pay attention to mm-hmm. are those fluctuations. Mm-hmm. And sometimes those fluctuations work in our favor. Sometimes they do not. Mm-hmm. And we have to respond accordingly. Uh, but it's a pretty lean organization mm-hmm. uh, because of our size and because of how much we give back to the state through mm-hmm. recapture. Mm-hmm. So uh, we have to be nimble in that regard, mm-hmm. and we've, we've got to find ways to adjust and prepare. So no alarm bells. Well, I mean, we're concerned about yeah. what we see on the horizon. Yeah, what what are you concerned? Well, the concern is that uh, if we have deficits of that nature, what will that mean yeah. for our staffing? Yeah. Because more than 80% of our operating costs are it devoted to our staff. Yeah. And so when you... You see a deficit like that, you know that it's going to have some ramifications for your staff. Well, that makes um, w- that makes one of your key goals that we talked about at the top of the show, mm-hmm. uh, developing staff, even more difficult because mm-hmm. you've already said that we need we're not paying our teachers enough, mm-hmm. so there is a deficit off the books mm-hmm. right now. I mean, how much more if you could if you had the budget available to you to pay the teachers you'd like to pay. Uh, the way you'd like to pay them, how much more do we need? Are we talking, uh, you know, $10 million, $8 million, $5 million? Probably not to that degree, but mm-hmm. certainly in the millions. In the millions? Yeah, that it, that it would require for us to continue to adequately compensate our current staff at the level that we are or at the level that we think they should be. And that would be competitive with the schools that are, that are driving some of the attrition right. around us. Right, and that's our concern is how do we remain competitive? Mm-hmm. And when you talk about tension, mm-hmm. uh, that's probably the thing that creates the most tension for our board of trustees, realizing that while currently we have a balanced budget, if you look to the future and if you look to the, uh, the expectation that we have to remain competitive so that we can have the best teachers in our classrooms, mm-hmm. what do we do to prepare for that so that we can retain our staff? And if, if EEF was not making their donation... Uh, each year, mm-hmm. that's that's on balance sheet, right? That's not off balance sheet, right? Yeah. So, so we would we would be missing those funds, and we have fifty teachers that are funded by them a roughly, year, approximately. Yes. Mm-hmm. So absent their involvement, we would have we have that exposure, mm-hmm. and They're, then we also have the exposure of what we need to remain competitive, which is in the millions. So we, it's this is significant. It is. It's just, I mean, this is this is this is a big yeah. deal. It's concerning and. Uh, first of all, we couldn't do what we do without mm-hmm. the Eanes Education Foundation as a yeah, partner. Sure. Uh, they are essential. And back to an earlier comment, too, you know, it's not just remaining competitive in salary, but we also understand that our teachers are making great sacrifices, most of them driving from other communities, and yeah. their commutes are 30 to an hour, uh, 30 minutes to an hour each way. Yeah. So we respect that, and we know that they're making those sacrifices. Yeah. Uh, one of the other interesting conversations that we're having is what could we do to provide affordable housing in our community that is dedicated to teachers? Uh-huh. Uh, so is there a way? A teacher dorm. Yeah, something of that <laughs> yeah, nature, just, perhaps, yeah. um, for, for those who are interested. That way they couldn't get away. And we <laughs> well, control their rent no, and everything. We have Then we've got them. Well, they can't go to other school districts. It's, it's about quality of life. I understand. And we want to... You know, we listen to our teachers and the difficulty that they have yeah. working in our community, commuting to our school district, and we we want to do everything we can to help them. Yeah. And so, but to the strength of our community, mm-hmm. we believe there are partners who can help us with that and mm-hmm. can 
um, collaborate with us to find creative mm-hmm. solutions. And those are the conversations yeah. that we look forward to. Yeah, it seems to me that it's time for some big moves because this uh, this exposure in the millions is not a next year thing. It's a, it's going to be facing us for many years. Mm-hmm. And if we're always thinking about how do we you know get the next check for living check to check to check. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's we don't want to be in that situation. So hopefully there there is some big ideas out there and um, something we can do to get over the fact that the state won't give us what we should be getting mm-hmm. or proportional to what we're giving. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't find ourselves in that situation. Yeah. Um, I don't envy uh, what you have in front of you. Um, I, you know, I want to wish you uh, good luck for... Uh, <laughs> Personally and on behalf of, you know, many, many parents that are that are in your corner, we want you to be successful. Mm-hmm. I look forward to you opening the dialogue, the communication, uh, coming here and being with me is a great start. Thank you for doing mm-hmm. that. Thank, Thank you. you for trusting me to, mm-hmm. to have this time, this time with you. Um, but I will, you know, we'll, we'll be watching to see how you open that communication with the with the uh, with the parents. Hopefully you can bring down help bring down the tension, mm-hmm. address some of these um you know, hot topics that are going on and the school goes on being the amazing school uh, that it is. And certainly, uh, selfishly, I want it to be that way as my kids go through the system. Right. And we want to honor that. Uh, As I said earlier, we know that parents have gone to great lengths uh, to live in our community because they want to be in the best school district. Mm -hmm. And we want to be the best school district for them. It doesn't mean that we're always going to be perfect. And Mm -hmm. We know that there are probably going to be mistakes as we attempt to be unconventional mm-hmm. because we, that's what it's going to take yeah. uh, to try to beat the odds yeah. and to try to maintain this standard of excellence. Yeah. Uh, but we look forward to collaborating with families, um, you know, knowing that that's everyone's shared objective. Yeah. Well, Dr. Jeff Arnett, I appreciate mm-hmm. you coming on the podcast, sure. on the Eanes Parents Unite podcast. Hopefully we can have you back another time. I look forward to it. And um, good luck. All right. Congratulations. Thanks, This podcast is brought to you by Ian's Kids First, ensuring that Ian's prioritizes our children's well-being, honors parental rights, and unites our incredible community. To learn more about our mission or to donate to our cause, please visit us at eanskids.com. That's E-A-N-E-S kids.com.